you want to turn to that, there should be Bibles around you. Um, and then Max is going to come and preach. So that's Psalm 19, page 552. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, thank you very much, Amy. A very warm welcome to you uh, here on this slightly hot, slightly grey Sunday evening. And well done for making it. I think, as Amy said, uh, it's the peak holiday season. So it's a joy seeing a number of you here uh, in front of me. As we continue our series, we've been following um, a series in the Psalms over the last few Sundays. And tonight, we're in for an absolute cracker. Psalm 19. And it's on page 552, if you've uh, closed your Bibles. Do keep your Bibles open. That'll be really helpful as we unpack the passage. Tonight, we're going to think about the word glory. Glory in the context of what it might mean to give glory to God. Before we do dive into God's word, shall I briefly pray? Heavenly Father, help us to grow in our adoration of you this evening. Give me clarity of voice as I unpack this passage and give us all ears to listen and hearts willing to be changed by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of the Lord Jesus through what we learn from your word this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A simple question as we start, a simple question as we start this evening. How much attention does your phone get a day? How much interaction often do we speak to it, use it, protect it? Can't go anywhere without it? Apparently, on average, us Londoners struggle to go 10 minutes without checking our phones. It's pretty terrifying. 
or amazing. A friend of mine asked me the other day, have you ever compared how you treat and glorify your mobile phone to how you treat and glorify God? It was a very good question. And out of context, perhaps a slightly odd question, but we are talking about the glory of God. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, glory is defined as fame, praise, or honor that is given to somebody because they have achieved something important. Fame, praise, or honor that is given to somebody because they have achieved something important. You could say it's giving someone our full, all-encompassing, and total attention, praise, and devotion. If you're taking notes on your phone this evening, don't worry, it's not a 20-minute rebuke on, on you glorifying your phone. But have you ever thought what it might mean to give our full attention, our full atten- adoration, our total praise and devotion to give glory, not to our phones, but to God? Perhaps we're sitting here this evening actually thinking, give glory to God? Well, why on earth would I do that? We see all the suffering in the world. We watch the news And so I think, should I give glory to God in light of what I see in the world around me? Or perhaps we're struggling at work with a boss. Struggling at home with loneliness and depression. We've lost a loved one. We're finding life just too hard. Why then? Why should I give glory to God? Perhaps it's not so much why we give glory to God, but how do I give glory to God? I have no idea how. Or maybe it's not the how or the why, but the when. Gosh, I live such a busy life in London. I just don't have the time. What does it mean to give glory to God? My friends, this evening we have the privilege, the pleasure of learning what King David says about why, how, when we should give glory to Almighty God. You see, King David, I don't know if you know the character, the person, in the Old Testament, he was born about a thousand years before Christ. Uh, was like the uber king. He was as handsome as he was powerful, as courageous as he was wise. There had never been a king quite like him. He was the best, the best, in an elite class of his own. And yet, and yet he wrote Psalm 19, giving all the fame, all the worship, all the honor, all the adoration, all the praise and his total devotion, all the glory to God. And why does he do this? Well, he points to three reasons. Three reasons. Firstly, which is a very broad reason, he points to God's awesomeness in creation. God's awesomeness in creation. Secondly, he points to a very unique reason, God's goodness in his word. God's goodness in his word. And thirdly, a very personal reason, God's forgiving love in salvation. God's forgiving love in salvation. So firstly, David recognizes God's awesomeness, illustrated through creation. Let's look down at verse 1, if you've got your Bibles open. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. David looks into the night sky and sees the stars of an unaccountable number, spanning as far and as wide and as deep as the most sophisticated telescope of the modern day can ever see. Another fact for you, scientists apparently believe there are about 10 billion galaxies in our observable universe. The number of stars in each galaxy varies, apparently, but on average it is assumed there are 100 billion stars per galaxy. Therefore, if my maths is correct, which it may not be, 
there are about one billion trillion stars in just the observable universe. I then ask myself sometimes, well, what about what we can't see? The mind boggles. Despite being in it, despite being a part of it, nothing that humans can do or make can replicate the universe in any shape or form. We can only look at it in, in awe and recognize the creator's, God's awesomeness. Look at verse 4 and 5 in your Bibles. David continues, In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. King David also points to the rising of the sun and that of a bridegroom to highlight God's awesomeness, God's majesty, his splendor. The sun, like a bridegroom, all handsome and all splendid, pure and radiant, coming out of his chamber to the light of the crowds. I went to a, a wedding in Greece a few years back, and the party went on all night, uh, <clears throat> right up until the time where dawn, the, where night started turning into dawn, as you can probably imagine. Uh, and before you knew it, the sun had started to rise out of the, the Mediterranean. And although the wedding party was was a spectacular, it was pretty awesome, uh, the music was literally amazing. Lots of Justin Timberlake. For me, that was great. Nothing compared to the sheer magnificence of watching this golden ball rise out of the turquoise sea. No matter how many filters Instagram had, I could not capture <laughs> this sunrise. And not only did this golden ball rise out of the sea majestically, but it simultaneously doused us, doused everything in its, in its presence with the warmth that seeps into your innermost being. You know that warmth? Verse 6, David writes, It, the sun, rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Michael McIntyre, the comedian, I don't know if you know him, um, he has this sketch that whenever the sun comes out in the UK... Every Brit just wants to get their face in it. See that sketch? I always think Clapham Common is a, is a classic case in point. It's just gone March. The sun finally makes a proper appearance. And whoosh! The nearest beach is 50 miles away. And yet there are more bikinis and swimming trunks on Clapham Common at that particular time than you see on Brighton Beach during the height of the summer. It's a fascinating, if not rather spectacular scene. And rather illustrates the point. Such is the magnificence the radiance, the beauty of the sun and all creation around us, that we just want to get our faces in it. David in the psalm could have pointed to many things, but he first looks at the simplest of illustrations in creation to highlight God's sheer awesomeness as a reason to give glory to God. Secondly, David looks to God's goodness in his word, God's goodness in his word to give reasons to glorifying God. Look then at verse 7. Verse 7, I believe. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is perfect. Not average, not pretty decent, but perfect. God's action plan in how we should live our life is the perfect schedule to bring total satisfaction, to refresh our very souls. Like an athlete following a training schedule as they seek the perfect technique, the perfect timing, the perfect result, 
That training schedule itself needs to be perfect to get them there. David describes God's word in six different ways. His law, his statutes, his precepts, his commands, his fears, his decrees. God's action plan is perfect. It's trustworthy. Look down at verse 8 if you're in the passage. It's it's right. It's radiant. Verse 9. It's pure. It's everlasting. It's firm. It's righteous. My goodness, the list could go on. God's character is revealed in the word. And David doesn't have enough adjectives and superlatives to describe God's goodness. Roger Federer, despite being one of the best tennis players of all time, although he did fell at Wimbledon, shame, still looks to a coach and multiple trainers to guide him, equip him in delivering everlasting perfection through his game. King David, the best king the world had ever seen. He doesn't look to any law he himself decreed. No, he looks to the law of the Lord, the law of God, for only that is perfect. He looks to the statutes, the word of God, to live the best life. For only they are pure. For only they are trustworthy. For only they are truly good. Laws enable peace, order, reason. We can live in harmony with a governing set of laws, can't we? London, great. We can enjoy our being under the laws that are right. And I suppose we can all think of the alternative to war zones to see what it might look like without laws. We can look at Syria and the civil war, the fight against ISIS, delivering death, destruction, sadness, loneliness, separation. The horror list could continue. But whenever the laws are made by us people, they're not always perfect, are they? They're not always trustworthy. They're not always right. They don't last forever. I don't know if you agree with that. Katie prayed about Hong Kong, and I think that's a a perfect example. My brother actually lives in Hong Kong. um, And last month, he sent me photos of the crowds of rioters that were lining the streets in protest against the Chinese government looking to change the laws of the Hong Kong Territory. Laws deemed not perfect. Decrees conceived as untrustworthy. Conflict, protests, broken ways of lives have ensued. Even when human laws are made, they're not perfect. As a contrast, see again how David describes God's laws. Look at verse 10. More precious than gold, pure gold. Sweeter than honey from the sweetest honeycomb. All these millennia later, and we still yet to find a currency, or jewellery, for that matter, that's more stable or reliable more beautiful, more perfect than gold. Some might argue diamonds are pretty good, but uh, Bitcoin and Facebook Libra have certainly got a long way to go. David likens God's word, his law, his commands, to the purity and attractiveness of pure gold. And he doesn't stop there. Let's look down again. Such as King David's recognition of God's goodness in his words, the scripture, the Bible, he compares its goodness to the greatest form of sweetness. I can't think what's sweeter than honey, but David can't think either. Honey, honey from the honeycomb. Over Christmas, right, all I have to do to win the ultimate brownie point with my grandmother is to buy granny that, the Fortnum Mason Welsh honeycomb in that beautiful glass jar. It's an absolute cracker to buy granny, I tell you. <clears throat> you can see the purity, the goodness, the sweetness of the honey oozing from the honeycomb from all angles. It radiates that goodness. No chocolate from 
older brother, no handmade card for my sister can quite compete. And yet again, I do win favourite grandchild. Come on. How much more sweet, how much more pure, how much better, poor, poor English, how much better is God's word to us, to you and me. Every time we read the Bible, we hear God's word spoken. We meditate on what the Bible passage means. How often do we recognize and dwell on the goodness of God's character, given what we've read, given what we've heard, given what we've thought? Next time you do, during tomorrow's morning's quiet time, after Tuesday's home group session, when you listen to worship music whilst running home, or a sermon driving in the car, next time you hear God's words and meditate on the goodness of them, give glory to God. By seeing the glory and awesomeness of God in creation, by recognizing God's goodness, his perfect character revealed in his word. So, third point, David understands God's forgiving love in his promise of salvation as the ultimate reason to give glory to God. Look down at verse 12 and 13. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. King David is, King David is humble enough to recognize that despite knowing he's the best king that ever lived. He isn't perfect. That on his own he does fall short of God's perfect standards. That he does probably give his phone equivalent, I don't know, his spear or shield, whatever it might be, more attention and adoration, more glory than he does to God. King David knows his own response to God's awesomeness and goodness is not adequate. And yet he also knows that by God's grace, through God's strength, he, he can be made blameless. Verse 13, look down, innocent of fault in the eyes of our perfect, awesome, and good creator God. Verse 14, look down. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David recognizes God as his rock, David, God as his redeemer. And so he looks to respond in living a life, giving glory to God. How much more should we give glory to God by knowing Jesus Christ? The fulfillment of the law and author, not just of creation, but of our own salvation. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. John 3:16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever might believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How much more can we call Jesus our rock? How much more can we call Jesus our redeemer in knowledge of what he has done for us, giving us life after death, making us perfect in the eyes of God so we might have eternal life? How much more should we live lives giving glory to God as a response of knowing and understanding his love in salvation? Look down again at verse 14 to see David's response. May these words of my mouth and, his, and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
David's words, what he says, the manner in which he speaks, the actions that are associated with his speech, his meditations, what he thinks, what he feels. May his very being, his identity, his personality, his interactions, may they all be pleasing in God's sight. The question, therefore, is, by seeing God's awesomeness in creation, God's goodness of character in his word, and his ultimate forgiving love in salvation, how will we live lives pleasing in God's sight, in giving glory to God? Well, I often look at my younger brother as a radical example of living to glorify God. Felix, dare I say it, is probably a funnier, more intelligent, better-looking version of me. Hard to believe, but potentially true. He's physically taller in height, mentally more mature in age, which I guess is not all that hard if you know me as well. He was head boy at school. He had a first-class degree at university. He got places at the top drama schools all over the world. He could have got himself a job in any big corporate Yeah, he's pretty cool. And yet, in 2013, Felix gave it all up to become an unpaid ministry assistant for an unknown church down in some random London suburb. For Felix, by recognising God's awesomeness in responding to God's goodness, to live a life glorifying God, meant giving up the workplace idol he had aspired to achieve and all the trappings that would bring. What might it be for you? What might it be for me? Every time we look out the window, every time we hear the birds sing, every time we wake up to the rising sun or look up to the glittering starlit sky through the light pollution in London, when seeing creation each and every day, why not give glory to God by praying and thanking him for this awesomeness? David noticed creation and so gave glory to God by writing this psalm. Why not do likewise? Or perhaps it might be that we make more of a conscious effort of getting up in time to read our Bibles. And so reminding ourselves of God's goodness, reminding ourselves of his perfect character as a reason to give glory to God. Or how about blocking time out on our work diaries to meet and encourage other Christians, other believers, at the work Christian meeting? Or maybe it's practicing the fruits of the Spirit and being kinder in our words and actions to those we might take for granted. It might be our friends we take for granted, our housemates, our family members, our spouses. Or we could be more generous with our time. Very easy to be selfish with our time in London. Our possessions, using what we've got to give glory to God. As David did, let's remind ourselves of the awesomeness of God by looking at creation. Let's recognizing, let's recognize God's goodness in reading his word. Let's ultimately fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus as the author of our salvation, our rock and our redeemer. And so give our all to the glory of God in how we conduct our busy London lives. In closing, I'm going to read through the whole psalm again as a prayer for each of us, like David, to recognising God's glory and to give glory to God. Let's pray. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. 
yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The Lord of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.